this time on Chew Diligence, a Kansas City culinary icon, the American. The American has always been, to me, the absolute highest standard, highest level in Kansas City, and I just wanted to be a part of that. What I would say American cuisine is just we are a melting pot, just like America. There's all different ethnicities. There's all different religions. There's different ways of life. It doesn't matter. When I work with chefs, I talk to them a lot about cooking from the heart, not their head. And, um, you know, I think that's all everybody's up in their head when they're cooking and, and enjoying it that way. Oh, look, they made a watermelon taste like a turnip. Well, it's been a while since I've been in the podcast studio with Jill. It's so good to see you and Haley. Hi, guys. Hi. Welcome to this episode of Chew Diligence. We're so happy to have you back. Thank you. Been having some good baby time? Oh, yes. Lots of baby snuggles and lots of eating on maternity leave. I've been watching your Instagram, girl. (laughs) You got to keep it up, right? Uh, Jill and I were talking about something that happened. We're taping the day after Valentine's Day right now. Uh, Last weekend from someone who's been on our podcast... Yes, uh, Katie McLean, Crookstrom Club. Um, some news there. Yeah, very bold statement on social media talking about they've been uh, struggling in the winter season and among other things and making a call for help if you love the restaurant to go see them. Jill, what did you think about that? Um, I knew she was going to do it and I pushed it out for her and I think it's it's bold, you know, but... Um, People need to remember that, yeah, if you love a restaurant, you can't just say you like the restaurant. You have to go there. How many times have you and I talked about this? There's so many places to try in Kansas City, which is amazing, which is a great thing that we have that I myself am guilty of going to the newest place and forgetting about the places that I love that I've already been. That is our MO, isn't it? We're supposed to be running around to the new place, which kind of drives me crazy, but it is part of our job. So, yeah. This is a good reminder to us that we do have to go back to the restaurants that we love. And I know you love Scandinavian food. I do. <laughs> With a Swedish husband uh, and an oh, amazing restaurant that serves Scandinavian food. Yeah, we go there. Um, you know, I was just going to say a lot. We have been several times, mm-hmm. but same story, right? And when we heard that, I was so glad that it wasn't a situation where they had to close. And then later I said, oh, but we love that place. Right. Well, you felt like you were doing something. The city showed up, didn't they? They did. I think they were a little bit overwhelmed even. Booked all weekend. Yeah. Booked all weekend. It's a fascinating point of conversation for chefs and restaurants in our really growing food scene in Kansas City. So if you love a local place. If you love a local place and the weather has been really terrible, Mm. help them out. Help them out. I'm I'm hearing it from a lot of restaurateurs and and chefs, not... not just Crookstrom Club. So that's an important point. Yes. So get out there and support even even though the weather may not be your friend. Not fun to drive in, but if you can do it, make it out. Uh, today we are talking about the American, which is so iconic for a reason, not just because it brought the first James Beard Award to Kansas City, boasting James Beard Award winning executive chefs. We're talking Michael Smith, Debbie Gold, Selena Teo, not just because So many stars of Kansas City's culinary scene have been a part of the American as part of their journeys. Michael Corvino, Christopher Elbow, Josh Eanes, Alex Pope, Colby Geralt. I mean, just the list of people have been through is incredible. But also because of its history of bringing the culinary world to KC and still doing it. So who do we have with us, Jill? Well, I'd like to segue right into the new chef over there, Andrew Longris. Say hello. Hi, how are jump you? Jump in, jump in here, and then Mary Mead, say hello. Hello. <laughs> and tell, tell everyone what you do at the restaurant. Uh, I'm the director of catering. Uh, I'm the person that uh, handles all the private events at um, the venue, which is now a, primarily a private event venue along with our concept series, but I handle all the private events. And you have stories to tell. I know you do. <laughs> So we're going to get back to those soon. And Tom Johnson, managing partner, sounds really important. I've known you for years and years. Um, You've been in and out of that position. Tell us what that means. I have. Good morning. I'm uh, glad to be here with both of you, all of us, I should say. Uh, yes, I was, I was there from 91 to 2001. I was actually not literally in the restaurant. I was running a company called Culinary Concepts. We had 14 restaurants all down at Crown Center. Uh, a varying mix, a production bakery. But the American was always our flagship. 
and uh, it was you know just a special place that we'll get into shortly. So I did that from '91 to '01, and I left and went back to ownership. I opened a restaurant, had it for ten years, and then for five I was up in Chicago doing cons- different consulting jobs, and I came back because I was tired of living apart, and uh, I heard from the people at Hallmark, and they asked me if I'd come back to work through the trend, work them through the transition, going from this beautiful restaurant that's open every night to a uh, facility that does primarily private events, but also doing some public events that are open to the public every year. So last year, we did eight. Um, We closed December 31st, 2016, and remodeled for three months. Uh, It looks the same, but we've taken out the big booths, replaced the red carpet uh, with a more neutral palette. So yeah, I've been back since then. And did you think twice about coming back, or were you ready to jump right in? Because it's a, it's a really new and different way to run the American, but yes. so happy that it's still going. Yeah, well, I, I didn't really call—I I called them, actually, because I mistakenly heard they were closing the American. And I was a little outraged because I thought, well, it's such an iconic place. There have been so many memories created there over the years— and I thought, well, maybe I could help them, you know, or, or at least find out why they would be closing. Well, they weren't ever planning on closing. That was a miss uh, thing I heard. So uh, it, it, I didn't call them looking for work. I called them looking for a reason why they would be closing. And then over time, they um, it was just multiple conversations, and it just kind of came to be. So it was kind of, you know, one day I woke up and I was there, and I was like, I wonder how that how that happened. I was just. Hmm. You know, but it was very exciting because it's such a wonderful venue. Even the space is iconic. Mm-hmm. We were talking about you just that just celebrated the 45th anniversary, open on Valentine's Day, and I didn't know this. the The wood sculpture is supposed to look like a Valentine on the ceiling. Yeah, I. You know, that's uh, that's a great story, <laughs> and it's been told for many years. Maybe maybe a tall tale, or? including in 1991 when I got there. But, you know, the architect was Warren Plattner, a very famous architect that the Halls hired out of, uh, I think he was in New York at the time. He went on to design Windows in the World in uh, the Towers before they came down and did a lot of other great projects. And I don't know as the Hall family went to him and said, I'd like you to create some Valentines on the ceiling. (laughs) If any family would do that, it would be them. Yeah. Right. But it is really... uh, it's no story. It looks like kind of this beautiful lattice. I mean, you've all seen it. Yeah. Uh, and it's gorgeous. And so I don't know the um, beginning of that story, but it's clearly a great story. And it did open on Valentine's Day as a gift to the people of Kansas City. Um, I don't know if you've heard that story. They they And it was told to me. Obviously, I wasn't here then. But they wanted a great restaurant. Joyce Hall, uh, the founder of Hallmark, and his son, Don, they wanted a great restaurant to celebrate American Bounty that wasn't a French or an Italian restaurant. Not that they didn't like French or Italian restaurants, but come on, it's American. You know, they've got great pro- we've got great produce. We were starting to get great wines back then. And they said, we need a place where if you live in Kansas City, you can go to a world-class restaurant right here, uh, second to none, and have... Uh, food that's celebrated throughout America. So there was a lot mm-hmm. of game on the original menu. Julie, you've probably seen those, some of those original I've, menus. I've looked at some of those original yeah. ones way back yeah. then. Yeah, right. And then it's just uh, through the chefs, like Andrew here, it's the restaurants evolved uh, cul- uh, cuisine-wise uh, for all these 45 years. Chef, is it intimidating to walk into a kitchen with such a storied history? Oh, of course. <laughs> yes, absolutely. There's um, a lot of history before myself. There is. I was previously there from 2008 to 2010 as a sous chef and going, working with Debbie and going through her and then seeing the difference on uh, Michael and before I even worked there, the evolution of the cuisine and service style. Uh, it's Yeah, it was very intimidating at first, but... Um, I'm enjoying it. We're having fun. And um, he hit the ground running. It was... <laughs> I started on November or no, December, December. 1st. Oh. And it's our busiest time. And it, yeah. Wow. And you're coming back to Kansas City. You're born and raised? Yes. 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 Just north of here. Yeah. And Liberty. Go ahead and say it. Liberty. <laughs> We're both from Liberty. <laughs> We're both from Liberty. Yeah. Helltown. Yeah. 
Uh, you were working someplace pretty incredible before this, right? Uh, before the American, I was the exec chef at Bluestem, right up the road in Westport for five years. Uh, previously to that, I was in California, yes. So. Where were you in California? Uh, me and my wife lived in Napa. I worked at the French Laundry. Little known restaurant, French Laundry. Mm. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> so she you says ironic. Right. Yes, absolutely. <laughs> you bring incredible experience with you for sure. Oh, I, I hope. <laughs> I have a lot to, to live up to with all the chefs coming in the past. So, Did you, um, did you dine there when you were a kid or uh, when did you first become aware of the American? Was it as a, as a chef or did it happen before that? I remember in high school, we had to do a career day, and it was a program through high school, and we would go and we would dine, and, and just one night, they would take us out, and it was a part of the curriculum in, not sure what class that was, I don't remember then, but, and we went there, and it was like mind-blowing. It was like, whoa, this exists here, we don't have to go anywhere else, okay, this is what I want to do, this is, this is something I want to be when I grow up, nailed it down. How old were you? Um, I've known I wanted to cook for a long time previous to that, but the, that was before the food network days where mm. it wasn't really, um, what you call it. It wasn't very, you weren't a rock star yet. If yeah. You were a chef, huh? Yeah. It, that the rock star <laughs> days weren't there yet. So, um, but that being said, it really just blew my mind of like, okay, well we can create memories. We can have fun. It's not sometimes in some of those higher end restaurants, they become very pretentious. This wasn't. So this broke the norm of the normal uh, high end restaurant. So that that really drove me into that. And then seeing all the attention to detail. Uh, I'm a very detail oriented person. So all the attention to detail, the small details going from how it's plated, how it's presented to the guest, the phonetics of eating were thought of. Um, if you're, you know, if you're right or left handed, where am I going to put this X product to make it easier for you to eat, those were all thought of. So it was, it was kind of, uh, I guess, more philosophical behind it. Of like, okay, this is this is more than just eating. This is more than just having a good time. It's an experience. Yeah, and those experiences create memories, and those memories will will last a lifetime. Hmm. Mary Mead has uh, visited with so many people these last number of years that have um, shared experiences at the restaurant, and then. Uh, you know, wanted to translate that into their wedding rehearsal dinner or their anniversary party, or we've had a 60th birthday party here. So uh, Mary Mead's been kind of the hub uh, between the past and with the chef here and translating all that, interpreting all that. It's quite a daunting task. She does rather flawlessly. So um, (laughs) it's... It's really, but you know, these are yeah. people's really special moments. They're coming in to celebrate. Yeah, you, you know, it's like there's a saying in the restaurant business in general: you don't mess up Valentine's Day. <laughs> you know, it's like that's <laughs> no. you can. Okay, Saturday night, maybe you uh, book too to book too many reservations, or maybe you had a little problem. You just don't mess up Mother's Day. You just don't mess up <laughs> Valentine's Day. Um, that's true of every private event done anywhere, really, not just the American, but. That has to be really special, and she and Andrew are the people that really are primarily making that happen. It's really, it's really an art form, I think. Yeah. You know, um, one of the reasons why I came to, to the American, uh, I was working at Cerner at the at the time as director of catering, and Zaid Nana, which uh, everyone in Kansas City knows, had called me and said, "Mary Mead, would you be interested in coming to the American?" And yes, was the answer immediately. Um, the American has always been, to me, the absolute highest standard, highest level in Kansas City, and I just wanted to be a part of that. Uh, I uh, came to work there when Michael Corvino was the executive chef just before the transition. I was there about, oh, two years prior. And, um, of course, when they decided that they wanted to do just private events, I was like, yes! Because I was always fighting with Michael. I need that Saturday night, you know. Oh, sure. Um, So, um, but what has been really important is, and uh, both Andrew and I have had the support of Tom and and Crown Center, um, is to keep the American standard through this transition. Uh, We still um, have synchronized service. Uh, We still have uh, beautiful linens, beautiful crystal, beautiful china. We have not um, 
dummy down at all. We still have um, the experience of the American for private events, um, and that is why uh, I enjoy it so much. And the expectation for people um, who have been to the American before and are now coming in for private events are like, wow, it is still the American. And I think that that's what is uh, so special about having an event at the American is you get to have that experience. It's not like going to a hotel or any other, any other venue in Kansas City does not um, keep that high level um, that the American has always enjoyed. And in our casual dining atmosphere, mm. <laughs> are people looking for this special um, more fancy, I guess, for lack of a better word, but, uh, um, you know, that, that kind of feeling. Yes. It, what they're looking for is the, the – it doesn't necessarily have to be stuffy because we're not. I mean, we do a lot of um, – I don't want to say more casual, but less formal events. But the quality of the food, the quality of the service never varies. Mm. And I think that's what people are looking for is um, the – we're having our event at the American. We know it's going to be special. We know it's going to be done well. And, um, and Andrew has been an absolute delight to, to work with. He's uh, one of those chefs that is client-oriented. I mean, obviously, he has his brand and his type of food, but uh, he is all about making sure that the client is getting what they want. And if it's pickled fried chicken, it is the best <laughs> pickled fried chicken out there. So is that, that a real example? Yeah, that is a real uh, example. Yeah. If that's what you want, absolutely. Yeah, we'll get it done. That's one of those. Uh, that's one of those dishes where, um, and I've seen it from a lot of chefs. You know, it's it's the aha moment. Yeah, uh, I call it. Um, my, they'll take a bite and their eyes will shut. And they'll be quiet, and there'll be no, and you don't know if it's like, is that just the worst thing they ever put in their mouth, or is that amazing? And they'll go, hopefully oh. not. And they'll go, oh, this is unbelievable. You know, whatever that is, whatever that dish is, and there's a lot of them, and uh, I've seen over the years, and and yeah, it's not. I wouldn't call it a signature dish because mm. there's so many, but that would be one of the dishes that. You know, falls into that category. You don't serve yeah. it that often, but it's no. But if the for guess, the person who's yeah. looking for it, it's not like a plated dinner. We you know sure. serve that, but for that reception, they wanted to have a less formal event. They wanted more home style food. That they that was exactly what they were looking for. So, all right. I'm picturing it sounds delightfully salty yeah. and tangy, and yeah, it's delicious. It's wonderful. The, who uh, knew? Yeah. On the to do list: pickled fried chicken. Take, it's easy. Take the pickle juice after you're done with the pickles. Um, you add a little bit of water to it and, and soak your chicken. After that, take it out. You let it brine for a day. See, here, it's it easy, out. says the chef. <laughs> yeah, they're always doing that. They are. It's not hard. Yeah, it's just yeah. you do this and you do this. They usually leave out a step inadvertently. No. In a 10% brine solution. Does You're that right. sound familiar? <laughs> oh, that's only on the seafood. Yeah. Only See, on the seafood. Just, there you go, right? Yeah. yeah. But, I mean, those You'd want a very 7% specific, <laughs> you know, like, I'm like, what? <laughs> How much? How many cups of salt does that mean? Yeah, right, right. Uh, depends. Yeah. Well, that's a ratio. So for every thousand grams, you'd put a hundred grams of salt into it. That would be a ten percent solution. It so. is artistry and math. <laughs> it is yes. right? a lot of math. Yes, very sciencey guy over there. You know what's very interesting about Andrew is he has a chemistry background. So oh, really? he looks at food from a chemical viewpoint. It's fascinating. Yeah. It, you have to almost right. I'm sure that adds a whole other element to how you cook. It does, but there's a lot of things that can transfer over, but not entirely. So the math does help you out on that one. Yeah. Um, if you're trying to figure out, we do, we use some uh, emulsifiers, and those are chemistry based because those will emulsify that you won't ever break them. So you can take a vinaigrette, add this emulsifier to it, and you could it'll never ever ever break. And you know that going in. Yeah. You, you can, and using that background really helps because it's. Uh, you know how much to use and how much not to use. So what is the chemistry background? I know you said you had a, an eye for being a chef in high school. Oh, uh, that was just uh, during high school. We we did that. Um, what is it? I would go to the AP courses through high school, and then I stayed around and got my chemistry degree. Wow. Mm -hmm. Yeah. That... And then I decided that um, 
there's only two things that you can do in chemistry. You can either help people or hurt people, and sometimes <laughs> helping them hurts them. So it's kind of a bad thing on that. So, so let's just feed them, right? Yeah. yeah. Well, the beautiful part about being a cook is it's instant gratification. If you go into a chemistry and you there's so much longer time that you have to do tests on, all right? You don't know the side effects till five, ten, maybe even longer than that. Mm-hmm. But for cooking, I know exactly right now. Hmm. You like it, do you not? And also it comes into problem solving of like, if you don't like it, how can I make you like it or figure out what I need to tweak to like it? So it's a lot of problem solving, lots of instant gratification, mm-hmm. and then it's just a lot easier. <laughs> we we had, uh, you know, demonstrating that chefs, I mean, really good cooks, not just chefs, but really good cooks, which chefs are, um, you know, they just transform food in a way that the public doesn't, and including me, uh, doesn't get. We had, you know, um, the uh, Kempo Lindo chicken. Mm. Yeah. There's a husband-wife owner. And they we used to do, years ago, we had a... Uh, uh, thank you party prior to the holidays at the American uh, for all our vendors because they brought in really great stuff for us and you know if it wasn't great we were sending it back and you know that we were kind of tough to deal with but we were nice and so we did this appreciation so they told me the story that one day when they started first butchering their chickens and selling them to the public a couple came by and and bought some chickens and took them home and they came back about a month later and they go, uh, you know, we were at the American restaurant, and they feature Campo Lindo chicken. We want to buy those chickens because the chickens that you sold us a couple weeks ago, they weren't the same quality. And, of course, you know, if you know the chickens, they're all running around. They're all right. mixed up. There was no difference in the chickens. It was merely how it was prepared at the American versus how they prepared them in their home. This sounds like a Portlandia it, right. episode, a very specific one. Do you know the name of the chicken? No. Yeah, <laughs> I know. This is great. Very specific. And it does make a difference. It yeah. makes a difference who is cooking it because they, right. they have different skill it, set and different knowledge. They just bring out the best in the products. They know how to handle them. They know how to cook them. Um, yeah, it's just any great cook just puts everybody else to shame, you know, that doesn't know the techniques. You can get there with practice. But even and with home, the simplest ingredients, you're yeah. right. They can make and it home, totally different. Home cooks are the same way. They've got their be- favorite dish. They just know they've made it a thousand times. It's not going to taste like anybody else's. And Yeah. Yeah. So it's kind of fun. Makes me think of, you know, some of the top restaurants in the world you see – it looks like a chemistry lab at times, the things that they're doing with smoke and nitrogen and all that. With a chemistry background, would that be – does that look fun to you? Does that look – I worked like, in, in restaurants that are that way. I yeah. worked at Alinea, and that's all that they do. Um, they kind of take the fun out of it, though, mm. because once you have all the math down, you're essentially a robot. So there's not really much cooking that has to get done at that point. It's a, a just a plating at that point. Mm. So it's really fun, but the really fun part about cooking is the every pan's different, every guest is different, every chicken's going to be different or fish or whatever. And to find the nuances on what you need to do to get every one of them perfect and problem solve, that's the best part. And constant. And constant. And being very, very efficient at what you do. Yeah, I've I've never been a fan of that style. I know it's Mm-mm. the rage and a lot of people love it and – you know, uh, Grant mm-hmm. uh, is very talented, and I've got a lot of respect for him because he lost his taste, taste mm. buds for a while. Mm-hmm. Everybody knows that story. But I think it loses the passion and the, you know, the. it's more about when I work with chefs, I talk to them a lot about cooking from the heart, not their head. And, um, you know, I think that's all everybody's up in their head when they're cooking and, and enjoying it that way. Oh, look, they made a watermelon taste like a turnip. You know, it's like, well— is that I just, a good I just thing? want a really good watermelon. <laughs> yeah. Why, why yeah. did you take a really good watermelon and make it not taste like it? Because yeah. when you eat it, yeah. you're not eating it with your head. You're yeah. eating it and feeling yeah. it. Yeah. And mm-hmm. and sometimes those are more an experience sure. dining. So yeah. if you want, if you're looking for that experience or memory, uh, when I dined at Alenia, it was amazing. Yeah, it sure. was a it was a very very good orchestrated show. The flavors were very good. A or, show. It was. It was. Um, but working there was completely different, and I saw the other side of it. So it was. You know, it's, all right, follow this recipe, don't mess it up, put this much in there, that's it. So there's not a lot of nuances that were to be had on that. And just being at the helm yourself is different, right? Um, yeah. yeah. I mean, but that being said, it, 
it doesn't matter if you're at the helm or not if you're trying to make it so regimented that it, it just takes the fun out of it sometimes. Hmm. Why do you think that chefs are – that's very appealing to a lot of chefs though, to kind of use nitrogen and spin this molecular gastronomy <laughs> piece out of that and, you know um, – that. Nobody knows what I'm talking about if I say the word molecular gastronomy <laughs> outside of this room, but this room knows what that is. Yeah. You know? and, yeah. and so where's the disconnect there? I think it's one of those things of I'm doing something that was deemed impossible. Mm. So I'm making a pasta that's made out of beets, and it's a gel pasta. Now, yes, you made pasta, and you made whatever your dish you were going for. It is possible to do, but at the end of the day, is it delicious? I don't know. It's so sometimes you're doing the technique without the end goal of it being delicious. Sometimes you're just doing it to do it because you can. Because you're showing off a little bit. Yeah. Or you've conquered the element. Impressing people or or conquering. That's a good one. And then, but Mm -hmm. nitrogen is one of those things that we can use for different textures. So um, you can use it for if you take a mousse and you you freeze the mousse into it, um, it makes it really like, say I made like a soup, just like a pea soup. And I shot into the nitrogen with a whipped cream canister. What it will do is it'll turn rock solid. <laughs> and so it's uh, nitrogen is negative 329 degrees uh, below Fahrenheit. So it'll when you put it in your mouth, it immediately is really, really, really cold, but it doesn't burn you. And then three seconds or four seconds after, it turns into a liquid. The oh, whole wow. thing. So there's like an experience that you're looking for as well. Yeah. Plus, if you're using nitrogen, there's different sugars or alcohols that you would be trying to freeze that you wouldn't be able to freeze. Sugar doesn't normally freeze unless there's abundance of water. That's what's really going to freeze. Alcohol, again, it won't freeze because it's got a, um, ethanol into it. So, And I'm guessing Mary Mead never <laughs> hears people come in and talk about, I really want a dinner with <laughs> no. all of these <laughs> <laughs> Interesting chemistry uh, lessons in, involved. No, they want a beautiful plate. Yeah. Oh, with absolutely delicious food and just served with a smile. Mm-hmm. How has that changed over time, though? Because I mean, I look back. Um, I do some food styling, and when mm-hmm. I look at what food styling was, say in the nineteen sixties or seventies, um, maybe some of the old platings that they did at the American, and then I look at what's going on now. It's such a different look and feel. I think it's still the same components that people are putting together on the plate. But how has that sort of changed over time? Uh, I think that now you have, uh, with the advent of the Food Network and Bon Appetit and Food and Wine, uh, the aesthetics of the plate has certainly um, come into play rather than here's your meat, here's your vegetable, here's your potato, you know, back in the 60s. Uh, Much simpler compositions and the artistry of the plate has become um, very important to people. And uh, that's the one thing that uh, the American does real well. We just don't have like an assembly line of, you know, know, just putting things on the plate. They're still very, very composed. um, And the ingredients of each dish is composed. We just don't um, like sometimes people will come and say, well, can we have um, a, you know, a piece of fish and a piece of meat? Uh, I'm like, well, no, uh, you know, the, the components of the fish dish are just for that. And the components for the meat dish are, are this and they're really not interchangeable. Mm. Sauces. Uh, yeah. Yes. Mm. Um, so um, the integrity of the plate is still very important to us at the American. And people are more sophisticated. They have a more sophisticated palate and um, understand that, um, that, you know, people also eat with their eyes and really do appreciate you know, the beauty of a really gorgeously composed plate. And Andrew is a master at that. Now, a place like the American has the social media vibe of taking pictures of everything you eat. Has that reached the American? Do you guys see that too and feel that pressure of making the plate look as beautiful as it can for the gram? You know? (laughs) (laughs) Well, we see a lot of people taking pictures of the plates. (laughs) It's uh, and videos now. You know, they're they're shooting videos, which is wild. Um, you know, we get so many requests for different things. I just look forward to the na- latest thing I'm going to hear from Mary Mead that a client requested. <laughs> we, it's, you know, it's been, it's kind of always been that way. We had a, a I don't know if you remember what the American, uh, looks like during the holidays, uh, or did we, 
it started one year when I was here before, and I got a call from the manager at the American, and he said, because it was a woman that used to take over the restaurant the Friday after Thanksgiving every year for a private party, and they would spend an enormous amount of money. And the mayor's Christmas tree is lit at Crown Center on that Friday, and so she would have this very elegant, fun, expensive party. What a view. Yes. <laughs> and, um, and we always did it for her year after year, but every year she tried to make it over the top for the previous year. So if you remember, if you can remember what the ceiling of the American looks like with all that slatters, well, there's thousands of bulbs uh, in the ceiling that were designed, and she wanted every single bulb taken down, which is now 20 feet in the air, and a string of Christmas lights hung from that outlet. And I said, Pat, we can't do that. It's going to be expensive. We're going to have to bring all these people. Anyway, so she said, I'll pay for it. So we did it. And I said, I got to take it down the next day because I didn't know what it would look like. Well, it was stunning. And we left it up for the entire holiday season. And it's been done every year since. Hmm. Uh, and then they, I don't know why, but they stopped doing it. And then when we reopened, we, we brought it back again. So that's a tradition that's been, I don't know, almost 15 years, maybe longer. And it just continues. But it's all those, you got to be kidding me. <laughs> you, you gotta, <laughs> what? We recently had uh, an event where they uh, wanted every piece of furniture taken out. They would be bringing in everything. They Actually, we had a couple. We've had we? a couple of yeah. those, yeah. Um, and they built a facade on the outside of the building. They built a facade around our host stand in the bar. Mm-hmm. And uh, they did a dinner for 65, and then 130 of their friends joined them at 9 for, a par- for an event. Wow. Yeah. And uh, it was uh, a reception at that point. So, Andrew, we were bringing out food. And so right. it's just uh, – it's never the same. It's just always something uh, – somebody's going to come up with something different. We also had a guest that wanted fireworks from the from – oh, yeah. oh, yes, yeah. fireworks. Oh, yeah. From where? From the roof. Oh, from the roof. Outside from the roof going down. So you could see them. Oh, Oh, yeah. It it looked like rain. It wasn't like fireworks. It was like rain coming down. Three-story windows. Oh, it was gorgeous. Absolutely So now we, now that was a guest that wanted that and uh, got the um, fireworks company to do it. Well, now guess what we offer? <laughs> <laughs> we do fireworks. We do and, fireworks and, of course, we've got a video of it going off. And, uh, you know, it's just one of those things you, you know, that wouldn't really be exciting in another venue because they wouldn't have 20-foot-tall windows. Mm-hmm. Uh, we haven't had any takers yet. Oh, actually. We, we did. We had a uh, New Year's Eve wedding, and they so oh. wanted it, but the fireworks people were, you know, booked, booked everywhere else. But she said, money's no object. I want it. I want it. And unfortunately, we weren't able to accommodate. But, yeah, it's uh, it's pretty spectacular. The brochure gets longer. Let me show you the fireworks <laughs> yeah. package. Yeah. The video. Right? Yeah. And they did it flawlessly. Like, all the lights oh, yeah. got dimmed at once. Nobody noticed. And then it, the big crescendo at the when the yeah. music, and it was on. Oh, that's it, was, fun. it was really That cool. was yeah. all over social media. All yeah. That was everywhere. Oh, that was yeah. really cool. Along with a lot of other photos of uh-huh. both of those events. So are oh. there ever things that you have to say n- no? Just I mean, because it seems like Andrew and I were talking about this. Earlier, you know, his job, he says, is to say yes. Yeah. And mm-hmm. I mean, is there, does somebody want to bring in a giraffe or, you know, do Is there a point where <laughs> well, you just say, enough. we'll keep them in the walk? Um, no, it's, yeah. it's either not with, in keeping with our brand or it's just logistically yeah, the things, impossible. We, we, uh, we don't like to say no, but we will say no when it, as you hit it right on the head. Uh, it affect, negatively affects our brand. Mm. So there are uh, large groups out there that want to uh, be in and out in a hurry uh, because for logistic reasons. They have a convention. They need to be out done in an hour. And so they'll come in and go, we want you to preset the salad on the table and then get the entree down and then serve. The, and, you know, we're not going to do that. Because not so much because we're snooty and we don't, wouldn't want to do that, but because everybody at that luncheon uh, would then think this is what the American does, and what's so special about that? I can get that at, you know anywhere else. Mm. Um, so we don't do things that'll put the food in a bad light or compromise service standards. But 
other than that. Well, yeah, I mean, we try and accommodate, like when people, like what Tom was saying, when we have some business luncheons that are like that, I'm just saying, you know, we're very good at getting out the food very quickly. Mm -hmm. Uh, And, you know, I try and work with them to uh, get their needs accomplished, but also not uh, hurt our brand. Or when someone comes in and says, well, you can just put the wine on the table. Mm, no, <laughs> we we serve our wine. Uh, we don't put wine on the table and have the guests serve it. Or can you just drop coffee pots? Well, no, we serve coffee. Mm. I mean, um, and then I talk about how you know our staff are quiet. They understand that there's a speaker going on, so they're not clanging things. You just have to trust us that we're going to give the best service possible, but also meet your needs. So we try and. I guess compromise a little bit. Or tell them what we can do, not what we're not. Yes, do, but, exactly. But once in a while, we have to say, "No, we're not going to do that." No, <laughs> we're not. No the space to you're the looking giraffe. For. Yeah. No to the giraffe. Well, no uh, to, no every, to that, that uh, didn't say no to that. One. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Let's point that so out. if you're out there, <laughs> every every restaurant tour has uh, gone through this. This is not exclusive to the American. You know, they, we all all of us in the industry, we all want to take care of the guests and and serve them well. And everyone who uh, has been in that position, you know, they, they're always weighing the, oh, can I really do that? But here's the bottom line. If you do something and the guest uh, during the, the during whatever it is you're doing and it really turns out badly and you knew it was not a good idea and you did it anyway because the guest wanted it, they're not going to say, oh, yeah, I shouldn't have <laughs> suggested <laughs> that. They're going to go, well, that was horrible. Why mm-hmm. did you do that? You know, they're not going to. And so all of us in the industry, you know, we just – we. Are, and and people need to realize we want your event, all of us everywhere in the industry want your event to go well. We're trying to do things that are going to be really spectacular for you. Uh, but we're, And we're going to tell you when it's really not a good idea. <laughs> <laughs> Speaking of spectacular events, uh, Friends of James Beard dinners, talk about how many have been at the American and, and what a big deal that is when you have them. Yeah, we started that... Um, when I was here before, uh, it was one dinner we started, and we raised money for the James Beard Foundation. And, uh, you know, I left in 01. It continued on, and it was held every year. We, When we remodeled, we switched the event from the fall to, the, to February. So there was a delay of a few months. So technically, we didn't get one done in 2017. But it's an annual event. We we just did our 20th. Yeah, so hard to believe. Longest running in the United States. Mm-hmm. Pretty impressive guest list. Oh, yeah. Oh, very. Well, let's talk about some of the chefs that have come through because... James Beard and I, otherwise. Yeah, hmm. well, exactly. I mean, Tom, you can probably answer this uh, or at least start us out on this. What For people who don't know what the brand is, the American brand and the chefs who have been through mm-hmm. um, that restaurant, it's pretty incredible what the American did. It basically put us on the culinary map. Yeah, the halls were so visionary with their decision to build this. I don't know if they knew. You know, I, I never met Joyce Hall. I certainly met Don a number of times and had different conversations with him over the years, uh, Don Sr., and now his son Don uh, has been wonderful. Uh, you know, back... Uh, I think it was summed up recently for me by um, the chef at uh, Spiaggia in Chicago who was in town doing an event with us. Um, oh, my gosh, I'm blanking on it. Tony. Name. Tony, yeah. Um, he came. Tony's probably in his late 50s, I think, yeah. and has been – he opened Spiaggia, which is a very famous Italian restaurant in Chicago, and then did other things, and he's currently back with them. And he and a, another senior group of chefs about the same age – uh, take this show on the road where they come in, and we did a dinner with them. But anyway, Tony came in, and he walked in, and I think it was his first time in the American, and he just paused. And he turned to his three other fellow chefs and some other young people that were there, and he said, you guys know what this place means to everyone in our industry? He said, some of the great names have been through here mm-hmm. and have started here. And uh, it was almost like he was in church. You know, he just, I mean, it was that... It was that special. And to see someone else acknowledge that was amazing. <clears throat> but before the Food Network and all the media, if a, you were a great chef and you wanted to get your name out there, you had to go on the road. And so we had much easier time back in the 90s bringing chefs in. So 
For example, Nobu was in, mm. uh, Tom Colicchio, who's now a network, you know. Jose Andreas. Yeah. I mean, I remember that so vividly. And he was he was famous. He had worked with Ferran Adria, but mm. not to the level he is now. Mm-hmm. I'm like, I knew him when. Yeah. Um, and I got to meet a lot of chefs that way. Yeah, um, that, Todd English. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, mm. Let's see. I'm, I'm trying to think of some. Uh, Rick Bayless. Rick Bayless was in a number of times. Yeah, um, I've got pictures of him when he looks, and I do too, a lot younger. <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah, you know, <laughs> Charlie Trotter came. I yes. mean, I mean, there are just some names that are legendary in uh, the culinary world, and I would never have had the opportunity because I didn't ever have a job that I could travel mm-hmm. um, to meet these people. So. It was always very special for me yeah. to be able yeah. to come to the American, hang out for the entire day, um, interview the chefs, be behind mm-hmm. the scenes, and then have the dinner that night um, and see what you know how it all came together. The interesting story, an interesting story about Charlie was that he, Charlie Trotter, he uh, came to the restaurant. Of course, he was, you know, he had a big reputation and kind of a big ego, and he um, did a lot of good in the world. But he also had this side of him was that was really, you know, chefs t- love to tell stories about him that, that worked for him. And Michael Smith and Debbie Gold both worked for him at different times. So he came in. He brought a team with him. They were meticulous. Uh, I don't remember if it was the James Beard dinner or something else, but we were auctioning off. Do you remember this? It was an an- yeah, I do, because it was an anniversary dinner. Um, it, wasn't, oh, yeah. it wasn't actually a Beard dinner. Yeah. It was something. And they were auctioning off a dinner at Charlie Trotter's in Chicago and I don't remember what the bit, and, and so it was a live auction. It wasn't a silent auction. So there were two principals left. And I don't remember the number, but it was a, it was a big number, let's say $10,000. And they were bidding against each other, and Charlie stopped the bidding, and he said, we're at whatever it was, $10,000. He goes, if you, and he was pointing to the guy that did not have the bid, he said, if you pay $10,000, I will agree to do, host both of you at different times. So with a, just with that, he raised an extra $10,000 for whatever the charity was. So he was also a very generous yeah. person, generous heart, and uh, I think was kind of a uh, – you see the best of chefs when they're in that kind of environment, usually. And then I also remember he was coming coming in uh, in the afternoon, I think, and – Kept waiting and waiting. We were all at the restaurant waiting for him to. Sounds sounds like. (laughs) I think I think they took off and went and had fried chicken somewhere. I'm Uh, I'm not sure, you know. But it's like there was a lot of, you know, where is he? Where is he? And Mm -hmm. uh, you know, he was a personality. So so he could turn around and say, yeah, another ten thousand. What the heck? Yeah, I I can do that. Right, right. (laughs) A lot of fun. Very very fun dinners. Now. Michael and Debbie were the first to win a James Beard Award, yes. and then later Selena. And so that sort of got our pipeline going um, mm-hmm. for James Beard Awards. And for somebody who might be listening, what's so special about a James Beard Award? Mm. Well, it it uh, was hard to get. <laughs> yes. Uh, yes. There are certainly a lot of categories these days. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's much like the Oscars if you've never been to one. Um, you know, you know the nominees and you talk about the nominees and they come out much earlier in the year. And um, you have to be nominated. Uh, it's, it's not easy just to get nominated. Uh, so a nomination for a James Beard Award is a big deal also. And I think Michael Corvino, wasn't he nominated? Mm-hmm. Yes, this year he yeah, was nominated. Yeah, this year. So, you know, congratulations to him. And... Um, I'm sure I'm skipping someone else, but uh, first of all, getting a nomination is big, and you you have to be on the map. People have to know about you, so it's not enough just to be a great cook or a great chef. You actually have to be. People have to know about you, so that's hard, you know. And and it's a very noisy world out there in media, and so um, back then, uh, you know, we did it kind of an old-fashioned way. And uh, we invited a lot of people to the American. They saw what they, we were doing at the time. And, of course, that's how the nominations occurred. They were, Michael and Debbie were nominated a number of times prior to getting uh, the award. They won in 1999, I believe. Correct. Yeah. yeah. Um, I, left in, I hired Selena 
And then I left, which she's never really <laughs> – she always brings up. Uh, so uh, I wasn't there during the process of her nomination, but I knew she was a great chef. And there have been a lot of great chefs and cooks through there that aren't either eligible for the nomination because they're not there long enough or um, – like currently, I don't know, as Andrew could be considered nominated because – we're not open enough, not mm. nightly. Mm. Yeah. Um, but he's certainly of the same caliber of, well, uh, kind of an interesting fact. I've never not hired a James Beard Award winning chef. For the wow. So <laughs> look out, Andrew. <laughs> that's so that's think, a pretty awesome track record. Yeah. There. Uh, uh, or I should say that could have been eligible because I did hire Jim Ackard. I don't know if you remember him. I do. He took over for Rex Hale and preceded Michael and Debbie. And he came out of Wolfgang Puck's organization, was a great chef, uh, turned really a, a big corner at the American after in 92, uh, but wanted to – he had he was young and he kind of wanted the big city. So he went and opened uh, Spago in Mexico City, you know. Oh. I, yeah. Uh, so he wasn't there long enough. but So he couldn't have been nominated. Yeah, the parameters are you have to be in the region for three years and then um, you have to be – the nominations are always dependent on uh, – it goes to the public first for nominations, and then that would be called the, the semifinals. And then the finals are by the past winners vote on that. Oh. So – and then it dwindles down. And yeah, the, past, really the past winners, once they give theirs, it goes down to four or five, and then the James Beard House chooses. I was going to ask, do you think with uh, Debbie and Michael winning the first, bringing it to Kansas City and the long road that that was, we've heard from other industries or, you know, we fight the flyover country image, and I really Mm -hmm. do think that is changing. Was part of the difficulty in bringing a James Beard Award here being in the middle of the country, Kansas City, and not New York or L.A. or Chicago? Absolutely. Well, the the biggest problem was getting the chef here, Mm -hmm. you know, because I don't know if you can remember back then. Uh, there were not – there were a lot of chain restaurants here. Uh, there were some uh, independent restaurants uh, that were – I would consider really good. But that really phenomenal – you know, that world-class chef, there weren't that many of them. And, you know, if you're trying to launch your career and you're in New York or San Francisco or Chicago and you're traveling to Europe and, hey, come to Kansas City, take over – so – by building the American restaurant, that was, you know, the, the chef walks in and go, wow, okay, getting my attention. I can do, I can, I can set up shop here. I can make something happen here. So without that, I think it would be very hard uh, to attract people. Now, not so much because, mm-hmm. you know, I think values have changed. Lifestyle has changed. You know, Andrew was at the French Laundry, one of mm-hmm. the, if not the highest profile restaurant, chose to come back here better place to raise a family. And so a lot of people are looking for lifestyle choices and they choose the Midwest in general, I think. So that's the selling point. You know, it's a better, better, better cost of living, uh, lower crime, great people, great schools. You know, all those things factor in. Now, if you're a hotshot single chef and you're wanting to go to Mexico City or New York, yeah, we're probably not going to get you. Yeah. The, the chefs that came in, they were blown away by the hospitality of Kansas City and the whole lifestyles that we have. We had a, a, a gentleman from uh, San Francisco, and we were getting out of the car, and he was like, so where do you pay to park? And we were like, what do you, what do you mean? <laughs> <laughs> he was like, what, what do you mean? I don't, I don't understand. You have to pay to park. He's like, no. Is that a Yannick? Yeah. Yeah, he's originally yeah. from He's from France. Paris. Yeah. yeah, Paris. From Paris. And, he's like, and he lives in San Francisco. He's like, I pay $62 a day to park my car. Oh, my I'm gosh. like, no, we don't pay anything. Sorry. <laughs> he was like, you guys are the nicest people here. I was like, thank you. It is. It's a lovely place to live. Yeah. When you were coming back, did, what did you think of the Kansas City food scene versus leaving wine country or wherever else you would work? You oh, know? It's just vastly different. Mm. There's not in, – in wine country, there's so many different restaurants there. Um, and Napa is only about seventy to 80,000 people that live there. But there will be you know almost a million people during tourist season. Mm-hmm. But there's a lot of restaurants there and – but here, there's not as many restaurants, but the ones we have all out there, there's a lot more independence. Um, some before I left, there was a lot, of, a lot more uh, chain restaurants, but that surgence of the independent restaurant really came, really, really, really fast, which is awesome. 
because people don't always want that. They want more of an ex, you know a, a smaller town feel. That's what we are. We're we want that small town feel. We want to be. We don't want to be New York. We don't want to be San Francisco. And I think the way that we approach people from those are they just get blown away by it. And don't you feel that maybe um, people who would have gone somewhere else once upon a time now the food scene in the last twenty years and I will credit the American I think for really kicking that off. Now they want to stay. It's not so much of a, I need to go somewhere else. Yeah. Not so much of a gamble. Yeah. I mean. Food scene's so different now so than different. 20 years ago. It's yeah. really good. I mean, I think it's hard to compare it to uh, Napa. You know, you will always, because of the attraction there and the wine. But compared to 20 years ago, it's nothing like that. And there are so many great chefs. I mean, you know, you've got Michael Smith, uh, Selena, and Michael Corvino all set up their own shops, all came out of the American, all were not living here at the time, all got recruited to the city. Mm. Um, so th- that's... Colby as well. Yeah, Colby. I didn't know that. Mm-hmm. I think Col- Colby grew up here, I thought. He grew up here, but he, he came back. Here. He was living in Santa Monica. Oh, yeah. Yeah, he was a cook in the American for a while when I was there. Mm-hmm. And, you know, there's a great... And there, this exists in other cities as well, but there's a great camaraderie with chefs in mm. town. You know, Colby was at the din- James Beard dinner mm-hmm. with his wife, Megan. <clears throat> it was great to see him. He hosted all the guest chefs at his restaurant uh, the night before the James Beard dinner. They were busy working all day in, our, in the American. And then he said, well, come on over for food and drink. He did it last year as well. So I think, you know, that's just that's just great uh, a great place to live and be part of a culinary scene. Is that different than other cities? I've had a lot of people ask me. They, they'll say, you Everybody's so nice here, and the chefs seem, for the most part, to get along and hang out together. And is are we different, or is that happening in other cities as well? There's definitely a camaraderie between chefs at all times. I mean, it doesn't matter if you're going to the small cities or the big cities, um, because everybody knows everybody. It's a very small world out there, and especially in our community. And so that being said, everybody's in the same boat for the same reasons. We all want to have fun. We all want to do good food. We all have the same essentially values. So we usually get along pretty well. There are some rivalries, of course, but um, those are just uh, probably ego-driven. And, and <laughs> Tell tell, <clears throat> tell them the story of, you just told me this week about how you got you were working at the laundry and uh, the Sioux asked, who's got a car? Oh, yeah. Um, so yeah, that was very. It was very fortunate on my end because so when I moved out there, every normally when you move out there, the cooks, the other cooks, just sold their car and they lived in the small town of Yonville. That's where the laundry is. So uh, Thomas Keller has a bunch of properties. Anything that comes up, he just buys and he rents out to his employees, which is great. Um, but I lived in the city of Napa, about ten miles away, so I was the only person with a car. So <laughs> Timothy Hollingsworth came to me. And who's, I, who's Timmy? T- oh. Timothy Holmes was a chef de cuisine, and so he was running it of, of the French laundry. Yeah, so um, he came in, into the kitchen, was like, "Who has a car?" And I was the only one to, and I was like, "I don't know what I'm getting myself into, but I do." <laughs> and he was like, "Perfect, drop what you're doing. You're gonna go work uh, with my friend at a, an event. He needs help right now." And I was like, "Okay." And so he was like, "You're leaving like now." So, okay, here's the address. Go. Well, I go there. And I find out it's Michael Tusk. Michael Tusk is a three Michelin star chef. Um, we struck a good rapport. Anytime he would come up to California or up to Napa because he's based out of San Francisco, he'd call me to do private events. So it was I was very fortunate to just have a car, <laughs> just be the only person with a car. And you got and, to work with a Michelin star chef. And I got to work chef. with a three Michelin star chef. And we struck a good rapport. So um, I went and helped him. I staged down there a couple times. Um, uh, his old sous chefs came to be at the laundry as well too. So we got, you know, I got the insight of how his, how they work and all the different techniques that they use down there. So it was a great learning for me. Um, it was fun. Yeah. It was, I was just merely lucky for, for having a car. I having said. a car. So <laughs> explain again for people who might not know, like how does Michelin stars uh, mm. equate to like a James Beard award or, you know, are they different and how so michelin um it was based in 1903 uh it was the michelin brothers people to make cars or tires so that being said they wanted to come out with a book and they were wanted to give the books to whoever bought their tires 
And so that book came out, and it would be rated on a one, two, or three. That would mean if you're going from Lyon to Paris, you would say a one Michelin star is a good place to eat. The second is it's worth a detour. A third Michelin star is that needs to be the final result. Hmm. Why you're going to Paris. Destination. The destination of it, yeah. So they're all based upon that. Uh, Experience um, is the biggest, you know, why are you going there? So in Europe, they are based on, they have little stars as well to them, but one, two, or three is the biggest one. One is merely for food, they say. Again, it's very secretive, so you don't really know what the parameters are. Um, Very shrouded in secrecy of like what, how do you get that second one? And people really, really uh, strive for three Michelin stars or two or one. And they're difficult to get. So Michelin has to deem you worthy. They eat there uh, unannounced. You don't know when they're going to be there. And then every year they come back out and at least two times. So you never know. So, So you have to maintain that. You can always go up. You can go down as well. That's not a good thing. Um, there's been some places that have gone down. Um, and then the only ones in in uh, United States right now are San Francisco, which does the whole Bay Area now. Um, there is Vegas – or not Vegas, I'm sorry, uh, D.C., New York, and Chicago. So we only have four currently right now. We used to have Vegas and we used to have L.A. Hopefully they'll come back to L.A. The parameters um, – and it's worldwide too. So they're in they're in Asia. Then they're, they're in the Middle East. They haven't been in the U.S. That, Jill, you would know how long I think. Uh, well, it's, sorry, I didn't mean to put you on the spot. Yeah, say, not, yeah, Jill not knows. very long. Less than ten um, years, yeah. I would say. Yeah, and and they would pick out a city and kind of survey the whole city. Correct. To give them a start, they're yeah. not just going after. Hmm, I think. But uh, in Chicago hmm. now, so like San Francisco, yeah. it's the whole Bay Area. They'll go all the way up to um, Healdsburg right now. Okay. But in Chicago, they're really like just Chicago proper. So they're not really expanding too much out of that. I don't know why, but there, so there's is, a lot of people that are trying to go to the suburbs, yeah. but they just can't get that. Is that a bigger award to you? I mean, would, would you it's strive a, for a, a Michelin over a James Beard? Are they equal? Or are they different? I think they're just very different. So, Well, the Michelin is, if I'm not mistaken, the Michelin's awarded to the restaurant. Yeah. The yeah. James Beard Award to the chef, is to, to the, the individual. Chef. Usually to the chef. I but think they have. I you think, wouldn't be the chef if you didn't have yeah, the restaurant, yeah, 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 too. Yeah, yeah. Right. So, right. right. That I, I guess they kind of go hand in hand on that one. Um, it's life changing to get even one Michelin star, right? Yeah, I mean, yeah. And then let alone two or three. There's people, um, Atelier Crin or Dominique Crin out of San Francisco. She got her third Michelin star uh, this year, and she's been working for that for ten years. She's had one, then went to two, worked many years getting two, striving for three, and then recently just got it. So congrats on that one. It's a big achievement to get a three Michelin star. It's kind of like the New York Times and the, you know, the stars. Yeah. If you, like get, if you, get, if you get the four, you're – Yeah. That's a, that's a big thing. So one thing that we've never talked about is the American, the name, and, and the importance of uh, American cuisine. Andrew, you want to take a stab at that? What, what is American <laughs> cuisine anyway? Because, I mean, the American kind of helped define it. Yeah, but. absolutely. So um, – what I would say American cuisine is just we are a melting pot, just like America. There's all different ethnicities. There's all different religions. There's different ways of life. It doesn't matter. And that's way we kind of take on that. There has been um, more Indian-influenced dishes. There's more um, you know, Asian-influenced dishes. There's all different runs the gamut up to it. So I think it's the melting pot of uh, you know, what we've done it's been it's evolved over time as well too it hasn't just been on one menu by any such fashion but um for instance debbie was very like classic french i remember <laughs> working as a sous chef and it was very very classic french it was delicious it was awesome uh and then there's other chefs that are a little bit uh you know different styles so you it's it's just an evolution i'd say yeah i, like I, I i've always thought it reflected <clears throat> the makeup of the country mm. Um, not so much just what we grow here, uh, although that's certain, you know, we like to, all chefs like to be as local as they can, but, you know, it's just not going to happen all the time. But I, I think Andrew just put that so well. It's really a makeup of all the people here, which means it's really not defined. Yeah. And the funny thing is, is even with the chefs that came in last week, 
they were they were blown away of what we can grow here. They were like, oh, mm. you just have cows and potatoes. And they're like, <laughs> no, we have ev- everything that is in San Francisco, we can grow here. might be a shorter period of time. It might only be available two weeks, but we can still grow it here. Um, we can grow things that, you know, are all the apple trees and fruit trees. We can get everything. It's uh, the perfect climate for it. And breaking that stigma of just being that flyover country or the meat and potatoes, um, you know, we have the best produce that I would, I've ever seen here. I love it here. Lots to choose from as a chef. Your palate is big. Oh, yeah, absolutely. There's so much you can, from the local farmers, too, that really take care of the products instead of just running them through the um, the gamuts of how fast can I grow it, how fast can I uh, get it out and make money. It's not that way here. It's, it's, it's a lot more, um, let's do it right. Let's take our time. And if it takes an extra week, well, it takes an extra week. Okay. Well, before we leave all of you, uh, if someone at home listening to the podcast is thinking, I want to go check out The American, what's coming up that somebody could go check out? Uh, our next event is, uh, the next two events are April and, I'm sorry, uh, Easter and Mother's Day. So we'll be open to the public both of those days. We're not taking reservations quite yet, uh, but soon. We've just, Andrew just created the menu and we're just kind of reviewing that right now. Uh, so both those are the next two events uh, and they're on our website at uh, theamericankc.com and check it out. That's a way to treat mom. If there is snow on Mother's Day, I'm going to be very <laughs> upset. <laughs> You've already got yeah. your reservation. Huh? <laughs> oh, if she's listening, yeah, mom, let's go there. That sounds good. Yeah, your first Mother's yeah. Day. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah. I wasn't even thinking about uh, that. Yeah. Thank you all. Yes. That's right. Yeah. So great to have you guys. Yes, thank yeah. you so much. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Glad here. to be here. Thank you. Really fun. See you next time on Chew Diligence. Mm-hmm.